and forth. Uh, she had a good day Monday, not so good day yesterday, and it's kind of in between there today. Last time I talked to Tracy, they were going to start dialysis today. But I haven't heard. Uh, does anybody know if they started that or not? Okay. I'm going to keep them in our prayers. That's a touch-and-go situation in a lot of ways. Anybody else that we need to be? Nancy Cruz. Uh, I just talked to Stan. They said they found, unfortunately, found another fracture uh, during or after the surgery, but they feel like they can treat it with uh, physical therapy, so they're not going to do another surgery. Fake Harvard had back surgery today. Yes, sir. Anyone else? Junior Hearn. Harris. Junior Harris. Okay. A lot of surgery going on. Anyone else? Let's take a moment and pray. Uh, when, when we pause and think about all the things that we would want to bring before the Lord, it's a reminder that we live in a world that's broken by sin, that it should teach us to look forward and long for heaven where these kind of things won't be there, that, that sin won't cause sickness, it won't cause disease, it won't, our bodies won't decay and break down, that we will be giving, given new bodies that live forever and that are glorious and are perfect. And so when we're confronted with these things day in and day out, a lot of times with sickness and need and just the various hurts and brokenness of life, it should drive us to the cross not to ask God why, because we know the why, because of sin. We live in a, in a, a sin-ravaged world, but to drive us to the cross and ask God, please continue to be merciful. Please continue to save us, sustain us in these moments. We should remember Verses like Colossians 1 where it says that Christ is before all things and in him all things are currently holding together. So that we do have a place where we can go when our lives are either coming apart seemingly or when there's hurt and sickness and brokenness. Remember to pray for Desiree as she's dealing with the cancer in her life. Um, but yeah, let's, let's pause before we get into the word and go before the Father. Lord, it's a humbling privilege to be able to come before you. Your word tells us in so many different ways, in so many different places, that we can come to you because you are our Father and we are your children. Lord, we're not bringing anything to you that you do not already know. Nothing in our lives is a surprise to you. And so, God, when we are confronted with sickness, when we are confronted with loss, when we are confronted with need, we can come to our Father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We can come to our Father who spoke all things into creation. We can come to our Father who is holding all things together. So Lord, the names that are listed on my sheet, we lay them before you. There are other needs, Lord, that 
we could just continuously go on and on about sickness, about personal need, about anxieties, about our parents, about our children, about ourselves, about our families, about our jobs. Lord, you know all these things. And you tell us, you beckon us to come and bring them before you. Because while you may not always say yes or no in that moment, Lord, you always say yes to giving us yourself. You always invite us to know you and to experience your goodness and your grace. You always promise, Lord, through the Holy Spirit to abide with us. And your word tells us that when we don't know what to pray, when we don't have words to pray, that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. Lord, we do intercede for those who are struggling with various health issues. We pray, God, if it be your will, to restore them to full health. We're so grateful for the medical advances and the time in which we live and the availability here in this part of the world and even in our state, access to world-class medical care. But, Lord, we know that that's not ultimate salvation. Salvation is in you and in you alone. Lord, as we turn to your word tonight, we pray that you would open it to our hearts and our minds as we consider what it is to be a Christian. Not in what we do, but in who you call us to be. So open it to our hearts, cause us to apply it to our lives. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. So we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 5, going through the Sermon on the Mount. <coughs> Excuse me. So if you were here Sunday, you noticed my voice was leaving, and it finally left on Sunday, and is slowly making its way back. And so uh, forgive me if I cough from time to time. I'll try not to cough directly into the microphone. But in Matthew chapter 5, we, we did an overview of the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago, and now I want us to enter into the sermon, and we're going to talk for the next however long it takes us to move through it about what Jesus was teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And specifically tonight, we're going to move into what is called the Beatitudes, or the essential character of the Christian. Who is a Christian? What are they like? What kind of person are they? You see, in the Bible, there are numerous offices listed in the church, pastor, evangelist, deacon, those kind of things. But you, what we never find is a detailed description of what those guys do. It never says a pastor is to do these kind of administrative functions and to do these kind of logistical planning types of things. The Bible is not as concerned with that as it is with who that man is to be as a man. You see, the qualifications for pastors and deacons are all character qualifications. Who is that person in his heart, in his core? What kind of life does he lead? And the reality is, it's not just confined to pastors and deacons. That's who Christians are to be. And when we come to the Beatitudes, what we are looking at is a character description of the Christian. What kind of person is a Christian? And so, we're going to consider these one at a time, and you've got three there on your notes. That's as far as I got this week in my study. I doubt we'll get through all of that tonight. And we'll just move through them as we move through them. Y'all good with that? All right. Now, like I said, I'm a little more informal on Wednesday night, so, you know, I may just point and call names and ask for questions. So just get ready, all right? 
All right, y'all are not ready, nor are you motivated. That's cool. Anyhow, I actually won't do that, so don't worry. Um, but I said last time, if we look at Matthew 5, it says in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So I told you last time that that phrase, went up on the mountain, is Matthew's way of saying Jesus is the new... Remember? Am I remember? Moses, be confident. Say it loud. Yeah, Matthew's saying that Jesus is the new Moses. Israel thought Moses was the deliverer, and yet Moses said towards the end of his life, there is one coming. He says to Israel, there's one greater who is coming. And Matthew's saying, we need to see Jesus is the fulfillment, the greater Moses. He's the one who's actually come to lead the people of God on a greater exodus. And so that little phrase, went up on the mountain is a biblical tie back to Exodus and the life of Moses. But what's going on is there's a huge crowd that's kind of gathered around Jesus. He's been doing, he's been teaching, he's been, he's been tempted, he's called. And just before this, he's been ministering to great crowds of people, and people are drawn to him. And so he sees them. He sees all these crowds, and he goes up onto the mountain to sit down and to teach. Keep your place in chapter 5 there. And flip over to the end of chapter 7. <coughs> the end of chapter 7 ends with verse 29, or actually verses 28 and 29. It says, And when Je Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. So you see there, the crowds have been listening to what Jesus has been saying. But flip back to chapter 5. Who is Jesus specifically talking to? He's specifically talking to his disciples. It says, he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... So Jesus wants the crowds to hear. He's preaching the gospel far and wide, but he is speaking specifically about the character of the Christian to his disciples. And so we're going to move through some of the specifics of what he's saying. But you see there on your notes, the intro to the Beatitudes, they represent the essential Christian character. All Christians are to be like this. We don't get to pick and choose. I have, you know, verse 3, I have the poor in spirit Beatitude, and verse 7, the merciful Beatitude, and that's what I have. I don't have the other ones. That's not how it works. This is a unit. This is a whole group of things that operate either you are Christ-like, and these things are true in your life, or you aren't. These are descriptions, not of offices in the church, but of Christian character. If we want to know who is the Christian, how does the Christian live his or her life, well, this is the description of Christian character. Every Christian is meant to exemplify every beatitude. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, these character traits are meant to be present and lived out in our lives. There's going to be varying degrees along the way. Some of us have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Some of us are new. Some of us are mature. Some of us are immature. But in some measure, these things, these characteristics should be true in our lives. <coughs> so, 
See on your notes, all together at the same time, this is not a list from which we pick and choose. They are a whole. They cannot be divided. And furthermore, they build on each other. So when we come to verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That assumes that verses 3 through 9 are all true about the persecuted Christian. It assumes that the persecuted Christian is poor in spirit, that they mourn, that they are meek, that they are thirsting and hungering for righteousness, that they're merciful, pure in heart, and that they are peacemakers. The last thing I'll say before we enter into it is that the Beatitudes highlight the utter and distinct difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. They highlight the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. What do you think people mean when they say, don't judge? So don't judge, don't judge, lest ye be judged, right? But what are they, what are they getting at when they say that? Yeah, they're saying, you know, better than me. Right? Right? They could be accusing of, you know, of, of saying, you know, you've got a fifth tier sin. I've only got a fourth tier sin, right? What else, are, what else are people saying when they say, don't judge? Don't tell me what to do. Don't get in my business. Don't condemn. I've seen license plates that say only God can judge me. I mean, those, are, those will bless you. And you pull up and that's looking at you in the parking spot. This always makes me smile. But, so let me ask you this. Can you, can you honestly not judge other people? No, it's impossible, right? Judgment's another word for having an opinion. For making a judgment call, right? If you're a parent, you want your children to learn to make wise judgment calls. That assumes judging, right? So when people say don't judge, what they're saying is don't deal with my sin. What they're saying is I don't want to be investigated. I don't want to be honest. I don't want you to look into my heart. I don't want you to get into my life because I know what I'm doing is wrong. I know what I'm doing doesn't, you know, doesn't meet the standard. Or, no, I'm going to leave it at that. That's what it means. That's what it means. But there is a ring of truth. There is an air of truth to only God judges. Because my judgment is just ultimately at the end of the day, my opinion on something. Now, I, I hold some pretty strong convictions that I try to hold to the Bible, and I try to let the Bible infuse my opinions. And I have a pretty strong opinion, a conviction, that God created the world and everything in it. Now, I can't walk outside and physically prove that to you. I can offer you the proofs of the Bible. I can offer you some arguments for that, but I can't prove it to you. But... I have to make a judgment call based on those things. But when we think about God judging, God's judgment is this. God judges eternally. God judges decisively. God's judgment is always correct. It's always right. And so when we ask the question, can we judge between a Christian and a non-Christian, what's the answer? 
Say it louder. No. Anybody say yes? So we have a, I'm going to say that's a yes. I'm going to push you into that yes category. Right now, it's you and me. <laughs> Just a fruit inspector. I feel like that's the same thing. <laughs> I judge bananas pretty hard when I'm choosing. That one's kind of brown. So in one sense, you're right. We can't judge. We are not on the judge's chair making that declaration, yes, Christian, no, non-Christian. But the Bible is full of evidences about what it means to be a Christian. We have the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. We have the Beatitudes. And we can say, and probably do if we think about it, we often will say that person's acting in a very godly way or that person's acting in a very ungodly way. Or in my own home, when we are disciplining our children, we try to incorporate the biblical language. Like This is a sin. That's a judgment on my call. I am making a judgment call and teaching my child that this action, this disobedient action is a sin. And I'm executing judgment in that moment that leads to the disciplining of that sin. And so, while we don't make the pronouncement over eternity for people, the Bible is clear that Christians and non-Christians look different. Look very different. It uses language like the wheat and the tares. It uses language like the sheep and the goats. It uses language like in Psalm 1, a strong tree planted beside streams of living water. And then it compares the wicked to burnt chaff that blows off in the wind. And here in Matthew, the record of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying very clearly, this is the evidences, these are the evidences of the work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. In the life of the Christian. Furthermore, we could say, if we are not to judge, then all the passages about confronting sin make no sense. Matthew 18 says, if your brother's in sin, go to him. Hebrews 3 verse 12 says, Guard one another, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to stray. Paul judges all the time, right? Colossians 3, he says, Put to death all that is earthly in you. He's assuming that there's earthly stuff in you, and he's right. And so, it's not that we are judging eternally, but we are discerning through the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the Word of God who is a Christian based on how they act and who isn't? Now, we need to be careful with that. That's not another uh, sword in our belt to go around slaying people. Hey, you're a non-Christian. That's not how we should respond. If we see somebody in sin or we see somebody who's not living in a godly way, how should we handle that? Pray for them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, pray for him in love. We should confront it, right? The most loving thing you can do for somebody who's in sin is to confront them in that sin. Not in a mean way. You want to do it in love. Speak the truth in love, right? When my children are sinning and they are doing something that could manifest itself into a very poor behavior as an adult. If I love them, I'm going to get in their way of doing that. Don't do that. 
I'm going to confront them about that. We, because we have a sin nature, are prone to sin. Our hymns say that. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And the prayer of that hymn, Come Thou Fount, is, you know, he says, bind my heart to you with a fetter, with a chain. God, chain me to you because I am so prone to wonder. And part of the way that you and I love each other as the body of Christ is that we guard each other against sin by confronting it in love when we see it. And by receiving those confrontations in humility. That's hard. It's hard to confront in love. It's hard to receive it in humility. But let's turn to the Beatitudes and consider some of these things that Jesus said. Verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, <coughs> for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pastor noted, you see there on your notes, that no one in the kingdom of heaven, there is no one in the kingdom of heaven who is not poor in spirit. That's an interesting phrase, poor in spirit. Let's talk about some things that it means. First off, we need to understand that it's first for a reason. It's first in this list for a reason. None of the other Beatitudes make sense. None of them are possible unless being poor in spirit is true of our lives. Every other Beatitude depends on this one being true in our lives. Being poor in spirit, you see, refers to a form of emptying and filling. <coughs> emptying and filling. The gospel first confronts our sin, empties us of all self-trust and self-love, and then builds us up into Jesus Christ. I fear that today, modern American Christianity has lost its understanding of sin. We've lost our understanding of the doctrine of sin, of how deep sin goes in our hearts. I tell the story sometimes, uh, some of you may know, we lived in Timberlake, my wife and I lived in Timberlake uh, for a time, we bought a house in 2009 in Timberlake, and that house had some ferociously large holly bushes, and Tara decided she didn't like the way that they, that they looked, and I agreed, because they were gross and big and out of control, and so being the good husband I was, I'll chop them down, dig them up. Well, I chopped them down very easy. Just, there they are. But then they got a stump, right? And as any good man would, you know, I just, I can handle that right now. So I got an axe, a trowel, whatever you call those things, and went to town on it, only to realize it goes like 75 feet into the ground. And the only body, the only thing that was going to lose that battle that day was me. Because not only are there like mangled roots going out every which direction, there are some massive tap roots that go way down into the ground. So what I approached pridefully as a 20-minute job became like a week-and-a-half job. Because I had to dig those things out and get all the tap roots exposed and take my chainsaw down to those things. and It was a process. But I remember, I remember when I finally got done looking at the hole in my yard, that I had not expected to be there. I had expected just, you know, to get them up and move on with my life. 
But there's this massive crater in my yard where these holly bushes had been. I mean, it was a big crater, like 10 feet wide. And I was thinking, I did not expect that. And as I've, as I've reflected over that, on that over the years, I've come to realize that's what sin is like. That's exactly how sin is in our lives. We don't often see the roots it has in our hearts and the hold that it has in our lives. We tend to look at the outward manifestation of it, the things that I do, the things that I might struggle with, the sins that come about because I have a sin nature. And I might try to deal with that by dealing with the actions that I do or don't do. But when we get after sin, brothers and sisters, it goes deep. It goes way down into our hearts and it grips us. And getting rid of sin is like digging up a holly bush. It's not enough to cut it off at the base. You might not see it for a while. You might not see it for a few seasons. But as soon as springtime rolls around, guess what? That bush is coming back. Because you didn't actually get the bush. You just got what the bush had produced. And if we think, if we think we can come into the kingdom of heaven with sin in our hearts, we are sadly mistaken. If we think we can lop off what we can see of our sin without really dealing with the roots of our sin, then we are sadly mistaken. If we think that Christ isn't serious about emptying us of all that is earthly within us, if we don't think he's serious about that, then we are mistaken. We think sometimes, well, I'm going to keep a hold of these things because I can handle them. Jesus, I don't need Jesus' help in this. I can handle it on my own. I can maintain this little fire on my own. It's like trying to maintain a wildfire when it's dry season. It will expand. It will get out of your control. I grew up hearing this little phrase, and I have been sad as to how true it is. But the phrase goes like this. You may have heard it. Sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go, cost you more than you ever wanted to pay, and keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. Sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go, cost you more than you ever wanted to pay and keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And if we think, if we think we can deal with our sin without the Holy Spirit, we are mistaken. So hear me plead with you about that. Sin is not something to be toyed with. It's life and death. And Jesus says right off the bat, unless we are emptied of all that is in us, unless we are emptied of our sin, we can never come into the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount, this is a quote on your notes, the Sermon on the Mount comes to us and says, there is a mountain you have to scale, the heights you have to climb. And the first thing you must realize as you look up at the mountain you are told to ascend is that you cannot do it. You cannot do it. You are utterly incapable of doing it yourself and that any attempt to do it on your own strength is proof positive that you do not understand that mountain. See, so many people come to the gospel, they come to Christianity and they think, I can be good enough for God. 
They come to Jesus and they think, well, I'm a pretty good person. I go to church on Sundays. I go to church multiple times a week. I own a Bible. I'm in a Sunday school class. I do this, that, and the other in the community. God has to be pleased with me because of that. Yeah, I've got some sin in my life. Yeah, I've got some areas I can improve on, I could do better on. That's looking at that mountain and totally misunderstanding that mountain. See, the gospel confronts us in our sin, brothers and sisters, and says there is absolutely nothing we can do. Nothing we can do on our own to get to God. God is so utterly set apart in His holiness that we can't get there unless He first comes for us. You see, in the Old Testament, there's a massive example of this. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Massive example of this. It's basically the whole Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 20, God gave the people of Israel something. Somebody say it? Ten Commandments. He gave them the law. Does anybody know? I may have said this last week, so I'll test you. The last time we got together. Anybody know how many individual laws God gave to Israel? Nope, not ten. 613. If you, if you evaluate what's called the Torah or the law, the first five books of the Bible, there are 613 individual holiness laws. And if you break one, you've broken them all. And so Israel received that law, and how did Israel respond to that law? They tried to keep the law. They became experts in keeping the law in their own opinion. Now, that's why Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. You look great, Jesus said when he came. You look like you're really holy folks. You dress right. You go to the temple. You pay your tithe. You pray these really incredible sounding prayers with big words for God and sin and all this other stuff. You look really great, but you're a tomb because you're dead inside. Your holiness only exists on the outside. Paul reflects on this in Philippians 3 when he talks about, he says, you know, I came from the right tribe. I was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, as well as you could obey, I did it. But then he says, uh, <coughs> sorry, I count all that as loss. Because he knew there is no way to keep the law before God. He talks about it again in Romans. In Romans chapter 7, reflecting on the law, he says, When the law entered, I became aware of sin. And because I became aware of sin, he talks about his spirit died. And he goes on later to say that the law was never intended, brothers and sisters, to get us to God. It was never laid down as a path to get into heaven. He says the law is a tutor or an instructor, a teacher, that points us to Jesus. From the, very, from the very beginning, God is saying to his people, you can't obey your way into heaven. You can't act your way into heaven. You can't be sinless enough on your own to get into heaven. You need somebody else. You need a Savior. Which is why Jesus came. And so that mountain confronts us and says, you can't climb it. And so you see on your notes there, poorness of spirit then refers to a humility. It refers to a humility. 
I've got listed there Isaiah chapter 57. You're welcome to turn there. You're welcome to just listen to it and turn there later. But Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15 reads this way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see, proud people are not in heaven. Those who believe that they are good enough to, to earn God's approval are not in heaven. It's said differently in the New Testament in 1 Peter where Peter says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And do you know what somebody is if they think they can obey their way to God? They are a proud and prideful person. That's not my judgment of them. That's the Bible's judgment of them. And so when Jesus comes to us, when he comes to his disciples and says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what he's saying is, unless we are emptied of our sin, unless we are brought under divine humility that only God can give, we will never have the kingdom of heaven. We see there that Jesus is the supreme example of what it means to be poor in spirit. Jesus is a supreme example, and this is just a spoiler alert. Every one of these Beatitudes finds its fulfillment in Jesus. <laughs> if you want to know what it means, we look to Jesus. If we want to know what poor in spirit means, we look to Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, we come across what's called one of the great Jesus hymns in the Bible. That Paul kind of goes on this eloquent description about who Jesus is and what he did. And so he's writing to the Philippian church. And in the Philippian church, pride and boastfulness was a valuable thing. It was a good thing to say, look all at what I have accomplished. Look how great I am. Kind of like we do with social media. Look how good of a day I had today. Look how pretty my life is, how attractive my life is. Some of the, the hardest things for my wife to see, personally, is how successful some other stay-at-home moms are. Because of the pictures that they put on social media. And we're looking at those pictures like, there's no way you have that many kids in that clean of a house all the time. <laughs> you know why? Because we have that many kids and our house does not look like that, except for about five minutes. But we, a lot of times we do use social media like that. We like people to think that we are good. That we've accomplished a lot. And that was what was going on in Philippi. And so G, uh, Paul writes to them and holds up Jesus and says, Have this mind among you, Philippians 2 verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he says, Who, although he was equal with God, did not count that equality with God something to be held on to, but humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, took on the likeness of man, that he came down here, that he died in our place, and therefore God highly exalted him. And that at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to be like Jesus. It means to be humbled before God. It means to be for us. It means to be emptied of our sin. And so you see there the definition. Poorness of spirit means a complete absence of pride. A complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing that we can produce. 
We can't just decide one day that I'm going to be poor in spirit. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It is just the tremendous awareness of our nothingness as we come face to face with God. It is our awareness that we are nothing in the face of God. And yet, when we reach that point, we might have the assurance that we have been given everything in Jesus Christ. Romans 8 verse 32 says that God will not withhold anything from His children. On the contrary, He will give us everything in Jesus Christ. (laughs) So, before I move on, any thoughts, questions, or comments about what it means to be poor in spirit? Or let me ask you this question. Why is it essential... You can't say what I said. Why is it essential for a Christian to to be poor in spirit in this way? Why is this essential to the Christian character? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Second Corinthians twelve. Therefore, I'll boast all the more in my weakness. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Somebody else want to say something? Yeah. When we can't be like Jesus. Yeah. Um, anybody heard of a guy named St. Augustine or Augustine? Ever heard of him? Tremendous theologian in church history. We owe a lot to him. He lived in the 300s. And he wrote a book, he wrote a lot of books, but he wrote a book called Confessions. And in that book, he talks about how Jesus saved him out of a pretty worldly, gross life and some of the lifestyles that he led and saved him through the gospel. And he talks about that he kept himself hidden behind his own back. And he said, it wasn't until God pulled me out from behind my own back and made me look at myself until I realized I am entirely sinful. We are very good at convincing ourselves that we are not as bad as we think. We are very good. We are actually the best. Each of us is the best at convincing ourselves that we are not bad. That we are actually pretty good. We're we're good at convincing ourselves that our sin is not a big deal. And yet, what does the Bible say? The Bible says sin is death. The Bible says over and over again that we should fight and war against sin at all costs. The Bible says that if we care for one another, we'll fight against one another's sins at all costs. The Bible says that if we care about one another, then we will address sin even if it costs us a relationship for a time. If one of our brothers and sisters is pursuing sin, if they are pursuing a destructive path, if they are moving themselves towards hell with how they are living, the most loving thing we can do is to get in their way, even if it means that that relationship is broken for a time or forever. Not to be mean in how we do it, but to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're pursuing sin. You're pursuing something that's opposing God. You're pursuing death. And so Jesus tells us very clearly that until we are emptied of our sin, we can never be filled with the Holy Spirit. But look at what he says. When we are emptied, what are we given? The kingdom of heaven. 
We are given the kingdom of heaven. And it's not just this idea that one day we will be with God in his kingdom. Now it is. There is a part of this that will not be fulfilled until God comes. But there is a very real gift of the kingdom now. It's given in how the gospel renews and, and, and causes life in our own hearts. It's given in how a Christian home operates. I have a peaceful home, and I'm thankful for that. Now, it's a loud home and destructive sometimes and pretty dirty. May have some peanut butter Nutella smudged around, you know. <laughs> but it's a peaceful home. And it's not peaceful because I'm a great dad and Tara's a great mom. It's peaceful because the gospel is alive in our home. And it's peaceful. That peace that lives in my home is an evidence of the kingdom of God at work in this world. A church that is peaceful, where peace reigns, is an evidence of the kingdom of God at work in the world. Churches are supposed to be like um, embassies. Uh, when our, our government sends out an embassy, that's where we say this is the representation of the United States of America in whatever country we're in. Churches are to be the embassies of the kingdom of God in the world, which is why churches should plant churches. We want to establish God's people, God's embassies all around the world so that the mission of God can go forward. But do you know who's not planting churches for God? Do you know who is not living in peaceful households? You know who's not living and conducting themselves in peaceful churches? People who are not, full, are not poor in spirit. It's essential to what it means to be a Christian. I'm going to move through the next one, and then we'll call it quits for this evening. But blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. <laughs> Jeremy Taylor was an um, English Puritan. English pastor in the 1400s, and he said this, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. What do you think that means? Yeah, that's exactly what it means. You see, God doesn't save us into a doom and gloom, depressed state. God doesn't call, him to, uh, call us to himself to be sad. And so what we see in the Bible is that being called into the family of God, being filled with all things godliness, should produce in us a happiness that is of God. Not a happiness that's emotion-driven. I can be happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad, all day. I can be happy six times and sad seven times, all in one day. That's not what he's talking about here. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he's talking about people who are inherently joyful. He's talking about people who know God deeply. Look at that second quote I put on your notes there. C.S. Lewis said this, there's a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. There's a kind of happiness that makes you serious. 
And that happiness he's talking about is knowing God. Because when we know God, we are confronted with a number of things. One of which is that we live in a sinful, broken world as evidenced by the things that we prayed for. Does the brokenness that sin causes in our lives through sickness, through the loss of a job, through money struggles, through family strife, do those things, I lost my train of thought, see, marks of sin, that won't happen in heaven. Do the things that sin, do they make us unhappy? Right, they might make us unhappy. Should it affect our joy? No, right? It should not affect our joy or our enjoyment of God. Paul says in one of his New Testament letters, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Let me just talk through a few of these things quickly. The world tells us to be happy, to seek happiness at any and all cost, that we should avoid sadness, that we should answer sadness with worldly things. I like to read about finances, and you only like to read about finances once you realize the benefit of finances, of being wise with your money. When you're not wise with your money, you don't want to read about finances. But I've enjoyed learning to read about finances, and one of the things it says in there, or a principle, is that avoid shopping when you're sad. Right? Don't grocery shop when you're hungry, right? <laughs> don't grocery shop when you're hungry. Don't shop when you're sad. Because the world tells us don't be sad. And if you are sad, medicate yourself in some way so that you won't be sad. And one of the ways that we've learned to medicate ourselves is by shopping, by getting stuff, by trying to fill that void with something. But there is a benefit to sadness, in some sense, there's a benefit to mourning in some sense. And the mourning here in the Beatitudes is not primarily an outward thing, not an emotional thing. But just as the previous poorness of spirit is primarily spiritual, this mourning that Jesus talks about is also primarily spiritual. We sometimes want to put on a show or put on a facade, especially when we're coming to church, yeah? I tried to bring attention to that on Sunday during the 11 o'clock. Was anybody here during the 11 o'clock? All right, so when I was preaching during the 8.30 service, my wife was calling me towards the end of the service, and she never does that. And I know that when I don't answer and she calls again, that something is not going to plan. Well, she called like six times. And so if you saw, as soon as I finished, I kind of went out in the hallway. Well, what had happened is that uh, there were some car issues, and the, the funny part is that I caused the car issues. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> Because she will remind me of that forever. But I had to, she was able to get off the road safely and park the car, and I went and picked her up and brought her back. And I got back in time to tuck my shirt in and preach the next service. And so when I got up to speak, I said, you know, I don't know how you came in this morning, whether you had a great morning or whether you're like me, you're limping in kind of out of breath and just having a morning. But a lot of times, for some reason, we feel like we've got to put on our best show to come to church. When we ask people how they're doing, what's the typical response? Fine. Great. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes we answer with the answer that we know we should say. Are we always that fine, though? 
Are we rarely that fun? Are, are we, I would say we are rarely that fun. We all come into the service every Sunday. We all come into this building every Sunday broken and burdened and heavy. But rarely do we say, yeah, I'm really struggling this morning. Rarely do we say, I am ravaged by sin this morning. Rarely do we say, my faith is pretty weak today. Because for some reason we feel like we can't mourn over our sin. We can't be honest about our sin. Rarely do we appear, or rarely do we want to appear weak and in need. And yet, what's the gospel say to us? We are all weak and in need. And so, let me skip down to what mourning actually is. Mourning is not depression. It's not hopelessness. It's not a fatalistic view that this is all bad and it's never going to get any better, so I'm just going to be sad. Spiritual mourning is a real understanding of sin in light of who God is. It's a real understanding of sin in light of who God is. It's a real understanding of the world in light of who God is. So let me tell you how that kind of works out practically. When people get sick, do we pray only that God will heal them in this life? Is that the sole thing that we devote our prayers to? It shouldn't be. We should pray for God to heal because do you know what? He can. God can raise people from the dead. He can raise people from the dead temporarily and eternally. There's nothing that God can't do. But we shouldn't be so caught up in this life that we forget that healing in this life is the, is the, is the best thing that God can offer because it's not. We should pray for healing, but we should pray for healing under the reality that God may not have it in the cards this time that this person is healed. God may heal this person eternally by ending their life here. And we should mourn over that. But mourning teaches us that death is not the end for the believer. I remember the first time I read the psalm that says, Precious to the Lord. Am I know the, the end of it? Precious to the Lord is the death of his saints. And I grapple with that when my mother passed away. And trying to deal with that as a 23-year-old is hard. How could this be precious to God? But you know what else is true? Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And so mourning is not just this sackcloth and ashes, black clothes, I'm sad all the time. Mourning, spiritual mourning, is a, an awareness of sin in the world. It's an awareness that sin is breaking the world, that sin separates us from God, that I have sin in my own life, that I have sin in my family, that there's sin all around the community in which I live, that there's sin in our nation and around the world. This is the anniversary of gross sin in our society. 9-11 was brought about by sin. But God is not undone by any of that. And our mourning does not say, God, fix this world so that we can have a happy life. Our mourning says, Lord, we know that sin is breaking our lives, breaking our families, breaking everything that we know, but we know that you will save us. 
And so our mourning doesn't lead to depression. Our mourning leads to comfort. And so when we talk about what it means to be a Christian, these are two very essential components. People who are filled with self-pride, people who love the world, people who harbor their sin as an ongoing lifestyle. That's out of step with what Jesus says the Christian is. People who are not broken over their sin, people who are not mourning over the, effect, the effects of sin in the world. Jesus says that's not in keeping with the gospel. It's not in keeping with the life of the Christian. But he's going to say a lot more things. I'm going to land the plane for tonight. Any questions, comments at this point? That's right. That's right. And that's one of the marks of being a Christian, that when I do sin, when sin comes into my life, I want to repent, I want to confess, and I want to deal with that, because I know that in confessing, Christ is faithful to forgive. Any other last thoughts, comments? Anything on your heart or mind? I'll be down here for a little while if you want to talk about it. We'll continue on next week, but let's close with prayer now. Lord, your word is clear, and it is confrontational. Your word is comforting. Your word is true. Lord, your word says about itself that it's breathed out, it's breathed out from your mouth, that it's useful for teaching for correction, for reproof, for rebuking, but also, God, for training in righteousness. Father, we want to be a people who are mature and complete and growing up into Jesus Christ. We want to have all of the traits of the Beatitudes present in our lives. We want to work those things out. We want to join you in our sanctification. We know, God, that through the Holy Spirit, you are working out the gospel in the lives of your people. And we want to be partners in that with you. Lord, help us to reflect deeply on some of these things, that I can't keep one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. That the more I I know you and I see you, Father, the more I will hate the world and the more I will want to put it away. Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. But while I am here, it'll be for the progress and joy of the saints' faith. Lord, help us to see that sin is breaking our world, that it's ravaging our bodies and our families and our society. Help us to be broken over that. Help us to mourn over that. Help us to come to you in prayer. Help us to stay before you in prayer. But Lord, help us also to see that this won't last forever, that there's coming a day when you will heal totally all that sin has broken. That promise is given to your children, Lord. Those who have trusted in you, who have faith in you, who walk in the way that you call us. 
So, Lord, as we part tonight, I pray that we would go with this on our hearts and our minds. I pray that we would look for opportunities to share the gospel with our friends and our families and our coworkers. I pray that it would be present in our home on purpose. Lord, we can't just hope that that the gospel is present. We, Lord, have to be intentional with it. We ask these things, Lord, in your holy name. Amen. Yes. Ray Link. Yes. Yeah, she told me he just came home, and hopefully he's doing better, so yeah, we'll add him on there. Thank you.